Hello. Hello. And, uh, welcome to the second episode of Unexceptional Americans. I'm Ethan Bird. Down to you. And um, we're uh, recording again here on a Sunday Sunday afternoon. It's raining here, Nick. How's the weather where you are? Um, not quite raining, but probably looking the same outside as as far as my view is concerned. Nice, nice gloomy Sunday to end this uh, month that has been one of the most interesting horrifying months, months in history. Yeah, horrifying <laughs> months in history. Certainly. Um, so let's uh, let's get started, Nick. You have some more updates since we last recorded about the Tara Reid situation with her accusations against um, Democratic frontrunner Joe Biden. Well, yes. Um, the Democratic Party's one of its nicknames is the graveyard of social movements. And it certainly seems like the Democratic Party is intent on adding the Me Too movement to the long list of movements that have been killed by it, essentially. Tara Reid, whose accusation you can hear in episode one, the full detail of Ethan Reid, Ethan reading the full details of Tara Reid's accusations of what Joe Biden did to her. Um, It's very graphic. It's disturbing. And unfortunately, I would say it's not at all unexpected. I mean, we've seen Joe Biden in pu- do really creepy stuff when it comes to women in public, in front of cameras, while people are watching, while people are taking videos, to the point where the nickname Uncle Joe derives from John Stewart calling him your creepy uncle in reference to all the times he just walks up to girls as young as 14 or 13, actually. I think it's been Yes, I made the mistake of uh, um, one time uh, referring to him uh, violating the personal space, to put it lightly, of Chris Coons's daughter. I called her 14. Turns out she was younger. She was 13 at the time. Um, there's the picture that everybody can find. It has gone down in history as one of the creepiest photos of Joe Biden, him really tightly grabbing her, her arm and leaning in really really close like his face almost on hers um and kind of positioning himself behind her too that's on the senate floor that was while photographers were out and about right before he was about to take a photograph for publication with chris coons and his family so um the fact that he you know, in, and then, of course, we have the Lucy Flores story, the woman who was running for lieutenant governor of Nevada, uh, when he showed up to do a stump speech for her at a rally. You know, he uh, grabbed her, uh, you know, like shoulders or something like that and touched her, the you know, her back a lot, really weird, sniffed her hair really creepily and um, on and on and on and on. It's not as, and he did that when nobody was watching. So when nobody with cameras was watching, it's not unbelievable that you know the less people are watching, the less attention there is, the creepier and more predatory it gets. And now with the Dune Tara Reid accusation, it is one of these stories where 
a woman and a, a man who employs her, who has power over her. They are alone together in a in an empty corridor, and he sexually assaulted her. It's an it's just an ex, an escalation of the behavior that he's demonstrated in public time and time again, a failure to respect a woman's right to her to her body, to her personal space, which of course links directly into the fact that he's actually fairly conservative on abortion itself. Not saying that opposition to abortion necessarily means you're a rapist, but there's clearly a connection there where Joe Biden just doesn't seem to understand that women's bodies are not open to him to do whatever he wants to them. Yes, I mean, it's worth noting, I just re- I was just reading um, in uh, last year during a campaign event, he was holding hands with his granddaughter, granddaughter, who is the daughter of Hunter Biden, who is his own you know, story that will be used in the general election, whether Democrats like it or not. Yeah, he's so a whole other mess. A beautiful, hot mess. He described what it's like to raise a young girl. He said, when your daughter's about 12 and a half years old, you put this little butterfly in bed and you kiss it goodnight. Next morning, you walk in and there's a snake in the bed. And I mean, obviously, that's... It's, it's, uh, it's a very That's really way. Freudian. It's a very <laughs> that sounds like Jordan Peterson. <laughs> it's a very crude way of describing how, like, you know people grow up or whatever and the kids grow up so fast but it just sounds so creepy even like the regular discourse that joe biden partakes in is uh caked in this layer of just disgusting perverted i don't know i don't even know how to describe misogyny it. quite frankly it's misogyny yeah exactly and of course now we're seeing and this really does infuriate me it really really to my core makes me quake with anger the people who are for whatever reason they think it's okay to defame Tara Reid they think that there has been an unprecedented level of I can't even call it a smear campaign at this point because it does not feel coordinated. The it does not feel at all like the Biden campaign is coordinating anything, or like anybody's coordinating anything to defame and smear um, and slander Tara Reid, because it just seems like it's spontaneously it's the Biden Bros. They they exist. They're real. The toxic support that supposedly only exists among Bernie Sanders online supporters like like you and I supposedly being the evil Bernie bros that are misogynists secretly. Biden's camp, all of a sudden, the Biden supporters who are exactly like that, the toxic online Biden supporters that everybody's been wondering if they really exist. Well, they do. And they're coming out and they've come out on their own. They've declared that Tara Reid is a Russian agent and they're defaming her as someone who's just totally making this up. I had a Biden supporter tell me the other day her arguments against Tara Reid's accusations were word for word the exact same arguments that the disgusting pigs of the Republican Party and the Trump administration were using to defend um, Judge Kavanaugh. They were saying, why didn't she just go to the police? Why didn't she just tell somebody well it turns out she said she reported it to somebody and now the person who was who would have been in charge of seeing all that stuff one of biden's executive assistants says quote i never saw anything like that so either they're lying or 
someone in the Biden Senate office's HR department just swept this aside. And as we know, Tara Rita said she was retaliated against. They fired her interns, took her office, changed her office, moved her to a smaller place, cut the number of paid staffers she had under her authority. They made it very clear if you take this any further, if you reject Biden's advances and you perhaps complain and make any noise about this, we will do even worse to you. This is before, this is just, where as far as Biden and his inner circle are concerned, this is just her rejecting his advances. And they destroyed her position within his staff. God knows what, that, that's clear, that's more than just a warning shot across the deck. That's a warning shot directly into someone's leg. <laughs> that is a warning shot across her neck. Do not cross us. Do not make any big deal out of this at all. If you say a word, your career is done. No wonder it took her from 1993, I think, is the year this supposedly happened, till now. Took Christine Blasey forward even longer than that to come forward about Kavanaugh. It's taken God knows how many of the, you know, God knows how many women Trump has violated in his life. Who knows how many of them are still out there keeping quiet about it? How many, you know, there's a bunch of people that Trump has violated, that Harvey Weinstein has violated, that, you know, um, that who are people with some level of power or authority, people who have careers. And they were terrified for a long period of time. That's the whole story of this Me Too movement, that for every one of these women who, you know, woman who was an actress who needed a job from Harvey Weinstein and felt like they were cornered into a place where him doing disgusting, terrible, the worst things that a human being can possibly do to another human being, him doing those things to them. God knows what he was doing to a, you know, a maid in his house. God knows what he was doing to some random secretary. God knows what Trump was doing to some random woman that worked for him or some poor, you know, camera woman um, on the set of The Apprentice. God knows what Trump was doing to an, what, excuse me, not Trump, what Biden was doing to an anonymous staffer, someone that nobody's ever heard of, someone whose name we will never maybe hear. For every woman who comes out, for every woman who has the br unspeakable bravery and courage that is truly not knowable to anybody who has not been a victim of sexual assault, that for every one of them who is brave enough and courageous enough to come out and say something, there are a bunch of women who they're not cowardly. Isn't nobody should take that from what I'm saying, but women who the intimate they are intimidated and have every more reason to be all the more intimidated because perhaps they are, like I said just the maid, just a secretary, someone who feels that they are in a position where they are so much less powerful than the person who uh, preyed on them. They didn't, that don't come out. There are so many more that don't come out. And Tara Reid said it herself. She said it. It was published in the uh, Newsweek article where finally a major publication, although Newsweek is not really a major publication anymore, unfortunately. Um, they had an article covering the Tara Reid accusations and basically said, where she basically said, I was afraid of powerful men. And she said she went forward to her, to I think it was her mother and her brother, 
who worked for Senator Ted Kennedy at the time, another paragon of virtue when it comes to women and misogyny, um, were her brother said, who her brother said remorsefully, uh, in re- referring to when he, when she told him about what happened back at the time, he said, I was not her best advocate at the time. I told her for the sake of your career, he said something along the lines of basically like for the sake of your career, don't pursue action at least any further than you already have just it's one time let it go and he said that remorsefully and of course i could not imagine saying that to my sister if somebody did anything like that to my sister i don't give a shit if they're a senator i would i you i would be in jail you know (laughs) the thing and this this goes for every single person i know we're not Suppose I know somehow we're supposed to be beyond saying this in the discourse as if somehow saying this is that this is sexist, but to me, this is basically just a basic point of empathy. Every single to every this goes to every single person who is a Biden bro or Biden sis, I don't know, who online thinks that they can tell. Tara Reid, that she's just a Russian agent, she's making it up, this is all lies, this is just Bernie people telling lies to smear the only person who can beat Trump, which is another lie, and a topic besides this. To every single one of them, I would look every single one of them in the eyes and say, what if it was a woman you knew? What if it was not just a woman, anybody you knew that you cared about? Yeah, I know we're supposed to I know supposedly we're supposed to be beyond that. That supposedly, you know, we shouldn't be asking that. We shouldn't be saying that because, you know, we shouldn't have to tell somebody, imagine if it was someone you cared about to get them to care. I get that point. I get that sentiment. I get the frustration that a lot of people in recent times in the Me Too uh, movement, the Me Too moment, express that sentiment. Like we shouldn't have to tell you to care. We shouldn't have to get you to imagine something terrible befalling someone you love to care. But honestly, clearly we do have to do that sometimes. And we have to stare metaphorically, you know, over the internet, you can't stare someone in the eyes. We have to look them straight in the eyes and say, what if it was someone you knew? Yeah, exactly. That's that's a very powerful way of putting it. I agree 100%. And I think it's really, it really shows that the kind of, and I think there was a Harvard study or whatever that debunked the whole Bernie Bro myth anyway, but it really shows that the, the vitriol that is supposedly, you know, um, unique to Bernie Bros on the internet, it's truly, I, I'm not even going to say that Bernie Bros are like, you know, ha- like nice compared to those people, but like, it's 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 just a it's just a function of political discourse online. Is that people are nasty to each other. That doesn't mean it's a particular candidate's problem. And um, and clearly the Biden people are are um, and they just you mean nasty supporters for every candidate. Doesn't mean it's Bernie's responsible. Doesn't mean Biden's responsible. But Biden is responsible for the sexual assault, obviously. And um, and uh, the thing about the the Russian agent angle they're taking is is that they've now started smearing the intercept not just howard dean i know we, we mentioned that i think um we mentioned that on a run of private conversations nick but um mm-hmm. howard dean but other people have are started saying that the intercept is a totalitarian you know supporting dictators publication they were a russian 
uh, disinformatia outlet, which I hate when people use the term disinformatia because it's literally just the Russian word for disinformation. Just say disinformation. Stop trying to be scary or cool or make yourself sound smart. You're not some Cold War era Sovietologist. And most of those people are dumbasses anyways. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, no, continue. No, it's, <laughs> no it's, it's fine. Um, but yeah, I think, I think like the, the people on Twitter that are, you know, have like, let's go Joe in their bios and stuff. Like, I mean, like, what are you, like, what are you doing? Like, this is, what are you doing? This is a candidate who, you know, he, was already terrible, already, who was already the worst, <laughs> the worst possible person to go up against Donald Trump besides Hillary Clinton. They picked the second worst person on that list. I think think he's better than Bloomberg. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Joe Biden's like number three on the list of worst people to put up against Trump. I I I wasn't even thinking of Bloomberg. He's so terrible. He's never in my mind. If you you took away the cognitive decline, I think he is better than probably Pete or Amy. But um, yeah, he 2016 Joe Biden, who was politically speaking a better speaker. I think he's. I think 2016 Joe Biden is more electable than Elizabeth Warren for sure, for sure. But the best option, absolutely not. And 2020 Joe Biden is nowhere near the best option. And we have a. He's actually a disaster. He's a walking. He's falling apart. We have a very viable option that's still in the race. That yes would need a miraculous comeback to turn this around but if people vote for him people you know you know we have the we don't we can't knock on doors anymore obviously we can't you know go out go out but if if you if you make calls if you send text if you do whatever whatever like it is that you feel like you're doing if if you want to just talk to your people you know i know the burn app is a great resource for that as well but if you if people convince others you know and and i think that the arguments are out there you don't even need to get into that but but why we need someone like Bernie Sanders, especially in this moment, which I had laid out and um, Nick and I talked about in um, in episode one. But like, we absolutely need to need to keep fighting to make Bernie Sanders president until it becomes no longer possible. Because I mean, obviously, we're facing a, a tremendously uphill battle at this point, but there is still a chance, especially with Biden's, you know, to put it lightly, you know, fragility. And I think. I think especially now there's a sexual assault allegation against him. One sexual harassment allegation against Al Franken. And you you know what? And the accusation was, of course, you know, I'm fine with the fact that he chose to resign in the wake of that. I think that was a good thing. It was him taking responsibility for his actions um, and apologizing. in a way, or, or at least him accepting politically that his career was no longer feasible. At least to some extent, that was some level of taking responsibility for his actions. But what he did was um, just generally be creepy and uh, like, I forget what it was. He tried to kiss that girl on stage um, during a rehearsal yeah. and she was like, what? And then um, you know, she pushed away, and so I guess in sort of as sort of like a weird, creepy act of vengeance, too. he took that picture of him squeezing her, pretending to squeeze her boobs on a plane while she was asleep, which yeah, disgusting behavior. Um, if you listened to his comedy at the time, it probably wouldn't have been that surprising. I think that there's an added shock value once he had become a democratic lawmaker, especially a pretty progressive one. Um, but. He resigned 
immediately before people could even fully process the full like extent of the allegations where there were still people being like, wait a minute. He like, wait, 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 can we get the full, people were still in that. Can we get the full story phase for a second? He dropped, he resigned quickly enough that there are quite a few people. I remember who almost had mental whiplash, like, like, Oh, Whoa, he, he, wow. He really, he really took this, seriously and you could say that for cynical reasons you could say that's for um ethical reasons i don't really know we're not in his head um but joe pine well i think it's... instead of taking any level of responsibility yeah. for why any of the women he's made feel uncomfortable feel uncomfortable by violating their personal space by you know you you misogyny is violence against women in the in the oper the operative word the verb of violent is violate and he violated yeah did misogyny to several women and his his response has literally i'm pretty sure he said something along the lines of i have never done anything inappropriate ever and that was before the rape back the sexual assault allegation um I'm not super pedantic when it comes to calling what he did to Tara Reid rape or sexual assault legally, though the, the terms mean different things or whatever. But um, he he said beforehand already, I've done I've never done anything wrong ever. Something along those lines of like, well, that's they're basically saying like, well, that's their problem if they feel uncomfortable. Um, and then he. And now uh, he still hasn't said anything directly himself, unless he's doing it right now as we're recording this. He still hasn't said anything directly himself in response to Tara Reid. And no one on TV, his TV appearances, has asked him anything about that, um, which is another disgusting thing. Where once again, we should just lay it out there that CNN and MSNBC are not valid journalistic outlets. I, I... If people want to attack The Intercept as being disinformation, sorry, MSNBC and CNN, they, I don't know what you want to call them. You want to call them e-news because they're basically on that level now. And I, I wanted to point out this thing that, um, that uh, uh, I saw on Twitter that was, that was a good point. It's like a big thing that, you know, causes people to freak out about people in Bernie's criticizing the media is like they think that we're criticizing like the guard, guardians of journalistic integrity that are criticizing Trump. And the fact is that MSNB, MSNBC, CNN, et cetera, they're owned by, you know, AT&T, Comcast, those giant corporations that Bernie has explicitly said he wants to break up, which means that you cannot not. They have a conflict of interest. A conflict of interest. You know, this, yeah, that is what we're calling out. Because it's not like we're saying they shouldn't be allowed to cover politics. Because then nobody would be covering politics on TV. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, like, in the case of MSNBC, like, was, wasn't it Biden's very first campaign event was a fundraising dinner in the home of one of NBC or its parent company's executives? I, yeah, I think so. And a VP from MSNBC was present there with him at the event. Like, the entire C-suite of MSNBC, NBC at large, um, you know, NBC Universal, and the, I'm, I'm pretty sure, uh, what com- I forget what company, I think it's Comcast that owns them ultimately. Um, yeah, Comcast, end, yeah. Yeah, that, own, that ultimately is their owner. All of them are huge Biden donors. All of them, lo- all of them love him. They're all the C-suites at their... Uh, at in each of their corporate headquarters is filled to the brim with people who would 
desperately prefer Biden over Bernie, especially now that he's the only alternative within the Democratic they would primary. They would prefer anyone to Bernie, and I believe that includes Trump. There's a yes, those people, the the like corporate America Biden supporters, a hundred percent, the majority of them would prefer, um, pro- would probably prefer Trump to Bernie because Trump is good for ratings, yeah, and makes them money. Which it was, uh, what's his name, Jeff Zucker, uh, I forget what uh, n- news station he was in charge of, but in 2016 he says something along the lines of. Trump's uh, Trump may not be good for America, but he's certainly good for insert name of company he was in charge of yeah. um, media I company because he was giving them amazing rate. Was it might have been? I don't think it was CNN. I think it was CNBC. There's a C in it. Uh, Is he Jeff Zucker? You said. He's yeah, I don't think Jeff Zucker worked. Okay, I think I think it was Zucker who said that. I could be wrong. Um, if anyone wants to correct me whatever but these people are actively on one side they are on the side of making sure joe biden wins joe biden's nomination is secure um, up until the convention at least yeah up until at least the convention which you know we can maybe talk about how some people are thinking about this cuomo coup Apparently, yeah. How Andrew Cuomo is somehow having a moment. Yes, yes. Um, it's a perfect segue. Actually, Cuomo has been pushed by a lot of people in the mainstream media, and I was surprised to see on uh, Joe Rogan has pushed him as well. I was uh, pretty just disappointed to see that actually, because for for all of most easy to sway person on the planet. For all of Joe Rogan. I said it to you before we yeah, started recording. Yeah, yeah. Most easy to sway person on the planet. Yeah, for sure. But for all of Joe's faults, he has certainly in him a clear anti-establishment streak. And yeah. that was not that is not evident at all when you say like Cuomo is a, a good alternative. Cuomo is the establishment. Cuomo yeah. is might be more establishment than Biden, even, arguably. I would say they're fairly equally establishment um, in terms of their loyalties to the ideology of the Democratic Party establishment. Well, yeah, they're pretty uh, equal, Biden. To its... Yeah. I, th- I think once Andrew Cuomo gets to Biden's age, yeah, yeah, we'll be like, point. well, the same. <laughs> What's the, the, only, difference? the only difference is that Joe Biden was born to a lower slash middle low, lower middle class slash middle class family and Andrew Cuomo's governor was literally the death uh, Andrew Cuomo's father was literally Andrew the governor dad. of New York yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 governor's son yeah uh, who apparently seems to have a lot of daddy issues because for all the talk of him you know as Joe Biden as not Joe Biden Joe Rogan as Joe Rogan said uh, he you he says something like Andrew Cuomo's inspiring the fuck out of me this week um yeah, I'm sure Joe. I'm sure um, Andrew Cuomo inspires confidence when he has spent several nights of this crisis going on CNN to have biz- absolutely bizarre Freudian arguments with his brother that he keeps starting. If you watch, I've I've seen Andrew Cuomo's appearance. I've watched each of Andrew Cuomo's appearances on Chris Cuomo primetime, and in. He are, he has some weird emotional argument with his younger brother in each of these um, interviews. 
And each time, Andrew Cuomo brings it up out of nowhere. He just pulls it out of nowhere. Um, like, it, Chris Cuomo was like, would you, would you, uh, in the first appearance, everybody laughed at. And everybody laughed less at the second one because it started to get creepy and sad. Um, but in the first one, Andrew Cuomo um, said, Chris Cuomo asked him, asked, Chris asked Andrew about, you know, Governor, would you be, you know, installing curfews or something like that? And Andrew Cuomo basically said, well, I don't want to call it a curfew. You know, dad put a curfew on us and I didn't really like it. I, I never really got past the resentment. And it was just and Chris Cuomo, just like his eyes book out of his head. He was visibly shocked and surprised that his brother would say that on live television to him while their mother is probably watching. <laughs> Just a bizarre, out of left field statement to make that you, what, who in their right mind, when they are a gut, when they are now the third term governor of New York, who is now, um, who is clearly has presidential ambitions because it, you know, nobody, nobody let, has articles written about them considering wanting to be president without actually having wanted to be without actually having like had that thought and expressed it to somebody um especially someone like andrew cuomo he definitely expressed that thought to somebody like i want to be president one day and that's why all those articles got written in the run-up to this race um which i think we should all put aside the fact that i think andrew cuomo once again there's clearly some weird emotional baggage going on with how he feels about his dad um it's probably the reason why he decided to go for this full third term because Mario Cuomo, as we know, was famously denied his third term because he was corrupt uh, and lost. Um, but Andrew Cuomo is just, he doesn't seem to be exactly the picture of mental stability right now either. And I, I, or of human decency. I, I I don't quite understand well, you know, the, the, where I, this is coming doing from. Doing a little bit of research on the, on the man, and it looks like he, um, his domestic partner, who he's been you know in a relationship with for the past sixteen years, just left him late last year, so a few months ago. And um, <laughs> I think I think that you know all those politicians that are in their governor's mansions and stuff, they pretty much all have some kind of spouse or like, and probably the real like many mistresses as well and i think cuomo is probably feeling a bit alone some of them do i would say what did they let's not get too far there with the personal accusations but i would say yeah that's probably true a lot of them probably have there's probably a lot of philandering well you I mean we heard what happened at the governor of alabama a few years ago yeah yeah, it's it'll always surprise us probably the real number and that was that was those the, if, if this caught. was ever all revealed i was just the guy that got caught you know so uh, I'm just yeah. saying, I, I shouldn't go too far. Yeah, the people who get caught are always surprising. We'd probably be surprised with the number of people who don't get yeah, caught. Yeah, and, um, but anyway, I, and I think because especially with the, with the quarantine, you know, uh, like, you're not, you're not really, like, able to meet up with mistresses. If you have a wife, then that's someone to keep you company when you're, like, alone. But he's just alone. And I think... Yeah, maybe it's loneliness that's getting to him. I, I don't really it, care about his personal life, but we have to care about it now because he's dragged it into the conversation by making these bizarre comments on, you know, national primetime television. So I'm just, if we have to, if we have to psychoanalyze him, I'd, I'd say I lean towards that, at least to some degree. Yeah, yeah, I'm not interested that much in he, whatever emotional, psychological things are going on with him. 
they are fascinating. And they are fascinating. Do not get me wrong with that. And they are, and these arguments with his brother on TV are somewhat entertaining, but they would be, they would be a little more entertaining if people weren't floating this idea that he should replace Joe Biden um, at the top of the ticket. And I think the really sad thing politically that this reveals is that this whole search for the perfect candidate that we've been talking about throughout this whole race, that, you know, that how, um, Harris had her moment. Uh, Booker kind of had his moment. Castro kind of had his moment. Uh, Warren definitely had her Putin moment. Pete had a moment. Pete had, had many moments that came and went. Beto had a moment um, that ended terribly. And Amy had a moment that was really poorly timed since they gave her her moment right at the end when um she got the call from Obama that said drop out uh, when Obama did this weird, uh, you know, How when Obama, did, I, I picture it like, th- yes, I picture it as being this weird, like, um, you know, like the Godfather uh, christening scene, the baptism scene at the end of the first Godfather, when he takes out all his enemies across the country simultaneously. Like that's this weird vibe that like that, um, Kyle Kunsky called it Bloody Monday, the day right before Super Tuesday. We're just like, I guess Obama went, pulled a Darth Vader. He hopped in his Star Destroyer and he stopped at every place he had to and was just like, you have failed me for the last time and forced them all to drop out. Um, I like that was that was weird when it happened. Um, And it would be hilarious if this consolidation around Biden that clearly like. 20, the poll just came out today. Only 24% of the people who voted for him in this primary are actually enthusiastic about him. Yeah. Only 24%? That's less than one in four. He's being propelled by... And you kind of have to be enthusiastic to be motivated to go out there and, and convince is, people yeah. to vote for him. If your argument is, eh, he's better than Trump, even in just your everyday personal life, you're not going to convince anybody. Even if you're not volunteering or anything. You're just not going to convince anybody by going, eh, you know, he's not Trump. And they're going to go, well, like, wait, isn't because, is, you know, I guarantee you by the time the general election comes around, most people will have heard the Tara Reid accusation. And they're like, really? How is he better than Trump? Isn't like Trump? Aren't they both like rapists? Aren't they both sex predators? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're probably right. Like that, that's not going to convince anybody. Nevertheless, get people to get off their asses and knock on doors, especially and canvas now. or volunteer, especially at especially this point. Especially when no. Biden's made it clear he doesn't want our help. So he's not getting me to pit, lift him, get up my ass or lift a finger for him. Yeah. And um, I just may, just may say this is that, um, first of all, Trump's not going to beat himself, which is what Biden's banking on. And people who support him banging on. Second of all, Biden is being propelled almost, I mean, 90 plus percent of his quote unquote Joe Mentum is being propelled by this electability myth the media is propagating in like rapidly and they're shoving down our throats. Yes. And- this is, this has never been a thing before. This has never been a thing before. Just this idea that just, elevating electability to being an issue in and of itself this third rail in this primary that they've grabbed everybody's hand and forced them to touch it and that is that is the and just that is the downside 
of having a president that is so like unpopular as Trump is like, you know, to some extent he is, he is definitely has a lot of, strength. he's more popular yeah. than people think. is but, the problem. And, and especially among, I mean, especially among Democrats, he is uniquely unpopular among, uh, among Democrats. Obviously. Trump is uniquely unpopular among Democrats. And, yes. And, and compared to among the rest of the country, he's treated as, as if he's just another Republican, yeah, yeah. which, you know, some might argue, um, except amongst Republicans who treat him as, as he's more popular amongst Republicans right now than Reagan was popular amongst Republicans not, when he was president. I did not know that, but, um, it's get because well yeah like the approval rating is in the nineties high nineties um, for Trump but like um, at least the last yeah. time I checked but um, the point of that I'm saying is that why the election's not over is because you think we still have what is it twenty six twenty seven states left to go I heard New York New yeah York. we still have a whole New bunch York. of states to go New York New, New York Jersey just, New York just postponed their primary till like June twenty something so um, yeah which is the the last date originally. Um, I'm, you know, I'm from New Jersey. I hate it because I hate I hate the primary process because our vote pretty much never matters because we're June the third or second or third usually. But th- yeah, this time it, we actually do kind of matter because I think most of, like all the states should basically get together, pick a day to delay their primaries to, and say, fine, then we'll all go at once on this one day. Yeah, and and I think that the the reason in June, in mid to late June, the hopefully. reason that. Bernie still has a chance. Is that five? Like, like, like you said, twenty-four percent of Biden supporters are enthusiastic about voting for him. So that means that seventy-six percent of his support is, you know, somewhat flexible. Not enthusiastic. You don't need to get all of that. You just need to, you know, he he, he was told he he won. You know, Florida is an outlier, and I'm glad we got Florida over with because, you know, honestly, like they are just never, they are never going to be favorable to Bernie at all. But. But the Bernie should Biden's do what Trump getting... did in 2016 and bring yeah. Tara Reid to the Biden's... debate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Have her sit front row. I don't think Bernie will do that, but yeah. He, if, if he was more aggressive and tenacious, but... he would, which is probably the number one reason he's yeah, losing, yeah. that he's not as well, the number one like, is, like, shamelessly besides, besides combative. The whole, you know, establishment coalescence is that, yeah. But, um, but, um, Oh yeah, the uh, Bernie. So Biden's been Biden's been getting like between fifty-five or and sixty percent of the vote in like most of these states that he's been winning. Once it became a two-way race, he's not. He's getting you know like seventy percent in Mississippi, whatever. You know we don't need to really count that. But and Bernie's been winning a few states here and there, even even since you know the whole disaster that was Super Tuesday. Um, Which you wouldn't know if you were listening to to MSNBC or CNN. They have not mentioned a single state that Bernie has won. They are only they. If you listen to MSNBC and CNN, you would think that California doesn't exist. We are not voting it. Yeah, you would think that California and Nevada did not have California. By the way, it's the most populous state in the entire country and the fifth largest economy. The most populous state in the entire country. Yeah, it would. It would if California was independent. It would. Bump Russia out of the G8. Yeah, yeah. It would bump, which no longer exists apparently. Whatever we got the G7 now. It would bump. I don't know. The seventh, I'm pretty sure, was like Canada. It would bump Canada or Italy. It's one of it's one of those yeah, two. The seven and the, the G7 would bump uh, them out. But, yeah, California, and also is the largest prize in the. Yeah, primary. well, because of the population exactly. 
and Bernie won that by a huge yeah, margin. Especially for the amount of people that were in the race. I mean, he got it by what it was eleven points? I don't even, I don't even know. But um, yeah, it might. And, and, yeah, it wasn't enough that only that he's the only one with delegates from there. But it was on well, it was about, par it was about seven, seven with, points. with Nevada. Seven points. Yeah, it was it was similar to um, how he crushed it in yeah. Nevada, which you know the. Biden's win in South Carolina was only like 1% more than Bernie's win in Nevada. But the minute he won South Carolina, boom, race over. I guess Biden won. Yeah, it's... um, He was expected to win South Carolina since the freaking beginning. Yeah, and that was... The... And every everybody says, oh, race is over. Wave the checkered flag. Biden won. Yeah, it's... That is... He barely scraped it together. He barely put, shit to, put his shit together before... Um, just to, just in the week before uh, the voting actually happened. Yeah, I mean it's that's just tough. But um, but the point is is that so Bur- so Biden is winning you know these elections, fifty sixty percent even. But but if Bernie takes some of that support and flips it, and if he turns out more people, and if he uses this mo- moment to reassess his campaign and get better, then you have to consider that like. Like he's going to be able to rack up huge margins if he does things right. Uh, that's a, that's why that's why it's not like a, I'm not saying Bernie's guaranteed to win by any stretch. That would be obviously a lunatic yeah. to say that. But he's but Biden's support is not very strong, and Bernie's support is very uh, the one the, the support he has right now is very you know fixed, and he can build on that. We'll see if he does. That's the question. Yeah. Um, just, and I think it's clear that, like, for whatever reason, there's a big chunk of Democratic primary voters who, they just don't, they still just don't know. They don't know who they want. They have no idea. They're lost little sheep. They have no clue who can win because for as much as the TV keeps telling them Biden's the electable choice, that's all they have about it. Yeah. It's all they've got on. And that is, you know, not a recipe for winning. Yeah. That's not, that's not a path to victory. Um, that all you, it's become this weird circular logic of he's the electable guy and then a bunch of, then he keeps winning the primaries. Some I, I, keep, I saw I've seen this all over the internet over the past uh, and over the news over the past uh, just twenty four hours. Ever since um, the poll came out about the twenty four percent, Jeremy Scahill like tweeted it out and was like, "Guys, this is bad. This is dangerous. We can lose here." And he, everybody's like, "Well, maybe if you just like changed your mind." Maybe if you stopped pushing this idea that he's not electable, maybe if uh, well, I think he's pretty electable because um he's he just won Michigan with like sixty percent in the primary. That doesn't all all the exit polls show that those people were voting pretty much solely on electability. That was the one thing that they were voting for, and it's becoming this weird circular logic, this self fulfilling prophecy of Biden's the only one that can win. Biden's the only one that can win. Biden's the only one that can win. And we're just going to say that over and over and over again. We're going to vote only for the person who can supposedly win. Yeah. 
it doesn't make any sense. It's a circular logic. It's a big round circle. It just says Biden's electable. You have to vote for the person who's electable. Well, how is he electable? Well, he keeps winning the primaries. It means people want to vote for him. Well, they're only voting for him because he's electable. Why is he electable? Because he's electable. Yeah. That's yeah. it. And That's all. That is. It, there's no. There's no reasoning behind it. It's just yeah, the Michigan electable. results. I have a tendency to doubt anyway. But is Biden won every single county, which is insane. Not yet. Yeah, that seems a little but, over the top. And I. I would love to see those exit poll discrepancies yeah, yeah, but, but we, but, from each of those states. I would love to know the amount of ballots that were thrown. Yeah, out. it's um, it's pretty insane. But but even with what he did, which he did perform, which you know, admittedly was a pretty good win in Michigan. If you if you take that at face value, which we will for the sake of this exercise, he won eight hundred thirty eight thousand five hundred fifty five votes. Now. He's going to need about two It's a state of millions. He's going to need about two point three million to win the state. Trump got two point two seven nine million votes. So if you want to beat Trump in Michigan, you're going to have to get between two point two to two point three million votes. And Biden has got eight hundred thirty-eight thousand in the primary. And when you consider, you know, some of the voters might vote for him. That's you know maybe it's a bit more. Some of Biden's own people who voted for him in the primary might not vote for him. They might, yeah, they might. There's that. Yes, there's always the fact that maybe, you know, there are Republican people who are secretly Republicans who are switching sides like they did in South Carolina. They talked about that. But there could be a bunch of people who are voting for Joe Biden right now who are like, who voted for him in Michigan who are like, wow, he's really really bad but i think he can be trump because trump is worse and i want him to be trump because i think trump especially is worse. since and, like, we're going to learn about hunter biden and james biden even more and that yeah the moment that general election rolls around and trump just drowns michigan and pennsylvania and wisconsin and ohio and iowa with ads about um about nafta joe about um of joe biden you know basically almost falling asleep on TV, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every terrible thing he does adds out of every gap. He can, Trump has a lot of money and in his war. He can produce. Yeah, he can produce. Yeah. Biden's campaign was borderline bankrupt before South Carolina. They had to set up a super PAC that he was avoiding having formed because it would make it look, make him look bad because Bernie forced everyone to not have a super PAC. He embarrassed them all into getting rid of it. Biden had to form one right before South Carolina to not go totally broke. Yeah. I... And it was set up by like fossil fuel lobbyists and Raytheon lobbyists, like the worst people on the planet. It's pretty, it's pretty awful to, to say the least. I mean, Biden is, I think Trump could definitely improve on his margins in some of those states. That's definitely... He might. He he actually might. He, which is the scariest. He could prospect. win Michigan by like five points, and he won by a, a hair last time. He won like he won by a hair last time, and that was because, you know, um, a significant amount of black working class people across all the Rust Belt states, who, by the way, I know there's this weird myth that Biden has 
all this support amongst African-Americans, it's mostly concentrated in African-Americans over the age of 40 and or over the age of 50. In the South, Democrats. Um, which, in the South. Which won't matter. In the South. Which, which people won't matter who, one iota in a general election. Unfor- yes, which, yes, it's unfortunate that they won't because the Electoral exactly. College exists. But, but then again, you know, we're not saying they shouldn't matter. We're not trying to do erasure. Yeah, yeah. We're just saying... Strategically speaking, politically speaking, those people are in red states, deep, deep red states that no Democrat has a shot of winning anytime soon. And like (laughs) those people are used. I'm like, this isn't an insult to them. They're used to just voting defensively, voting for pure survival, because that's what it's like if you're a black Democrat in a state like Mississippi or Alabama or South Carolina. That's what or Georgia. That's what it's like. You're voting. You, you're used to voting surely out of like a political survival instinct. You're used to having to pick people who are centrist, center right. Even even full blown right wing Democrats because that's who can win there yeah. Yeah. because you're necessarily in the minority and you're probably always going to be stuck there. Yeah, it's um... for at least the foreseeable future, which sucks. It's terrible. It's unfair, but it is the political it is, it reality. Is reality, and um, it's pretty unfortunate to see that you know Biden thinks that he's not. It's not like Hillary. I think they've had a, a memo in the campaign that detailed like seven reasons why Biden is not Hillary. But Biden's going to end up being worse than Hillary. Um, Hillary could form complete sentences. Hillary had um, people. Hillary was rumored to have Parkinson's and not dementia. Um, <laughs> like the, there's there's a list of seven reasons that I could come up with. And oh, Biden wrote the crime bill. Hillary just supported it as first lady. Um, Biden was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and, you know, was like a the chief whip whipped Democratic votes and spoke for hours in favor of the invasion of Iraq, whereas Hillary Clinton gave one short speech and cast her vote for it. Um, he uh, Hillary Clinton's married to an alleged rapist, not an actual alleged yeah. rapist. Um, Hillary Clinton didn't write <laughs> like the the list the list of things that separates them is not a list She's of like, good things. She, she didn't write the bankruptcy bill. She just voted for it. Yeah, she didn't write it. She she told Elizabeth Warren in private she wouldn't vote for it, and then then did anyways. Whereas Joe Biden just wrote it and shepherded yeah, it through. I mean, you know, like on the list of things that are differences between them are not Hillary good. Better than Joe, especially like in terms of the like, I mean, yeah. She, she actually tried to fight for Back some sort of uh, yeah. national health insurance program in the first Clinton administration, the and first Biden Clinton term. Biden didn't. Biden wasn't there the, for that. The yeah, yeah. Um, he was one of the Democrats who didn't pick up be on it. Because in a general that's election, why they're going to say that you know Biden has a strength. I remember what happened in what happened in 2016 where. You know, on the night of the election, MSNBC was reporting that um, black vote whippers, essentially, and um, that, that's, that's a unfortunate term used with uh, the black vote. But um, people that were just like whipping up black votes in Philadelphia, they had delivered the state to Hillary Clinton. In Jalock, Pennsylvania, people that were whipping up Latino votes in Florida had delivered the state to Hillary Clinton. And it's not actually there. Their, their projections are off because they have a candidate that is extremely, you know, enjoyed yeah. 
Yeah, the the turnout the vote institutions are actually not that good at pulling people together. They're at this point, the Democratic Party's vote gathering institutions, vote whipping, turn voting, voter turnout operations. They're so anemic now that all they can do is get people to vote in a primary, and that's it. It's um, it's pretty sad and. it's very sad. And um, it's I don't have much of a good segue into this, but I did want to cover something else on the uh, on the podcast today, which is um, volunteerism. Boopity boop boop. Yeah, new but story. We can draw a bit of a parallel to the, that the uh, people that engage in volunteerism, and certainly like the, the bad side of it, are more likely to be um, people that are in this new kind of reality of the Democratic Party, which is white, upper-middle-class suburbs, which is exactly what Hillary Clinton's campaign said. For every one working-class person we'll lose in Pittsburgh, we'll pick up a white Republican woman in the suburbs of Philadelphia. That's historic failure. Yep, the strategic genius Chuck Schumer who said that. Yes, Chuck Schumer said that. Yeah, I thought it was Robbie Mook for some reason, but I guess he probably said something similar, but... Um, so, yeah, um, probably. I looked at a few, I, 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 um, I saw a thing on Twitter, actually, it was by a, uh, a person by the name of, um, who is affiliated in some respects to, um, um, uh, Ilan Omar, who has done some TikToks with her, and that person's name is escaping me right now. But she basically tweeted out, um, mission trips are modern-day colonization. I, I made a mistake earlier when I told you, Nick, it was colonialism. It was colonization, which is an interesting way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, I don't think it's literally colonization, but there are maybe um, some elements that you could you could mention there. And um, I did read a... I did read a article on National Geographic entitled Five Myths About Volunteerism, which said that some articles that like to bash on those people um, are actually not true. And the author made a good point, which says, and though media coverages remain, media coverage remains focused on local impact, reporting rarely includes local perspectives, which seems, dare I say, neocolonialistic. So there are people that, so the unfortunate thing is that people are often trying to um, construct like a Yeah, go into the, uh, it was a Guardian article, yeah, right? right? The original article on uh, volunteerism that, intro- that sort of like yeah, had the yeah, term that, in its that's title. That's the one that kind, of, um, that kind of made the term, you know, um, very like mainstream in the popular discourse, which was in 2018, a long form Guardian article that said, the business of volunteerism, do Western do-gooders actually do harm? And I think that this is a very interesting topic because especially we're going to see this after the coronavirus is over because we're going to see how this affects these kinds of relationships between the West and the developing world, which me um, being who I am and with based on everything I've read about foreign policy and America's role in the world in the past few years, I am um, in, inherently skeptical, instinctively skeptical of Western 
intervention in these countries because of the damage that it's done on both a military, but also almost, if not more important for most of the population, because military you know, interventions can be terrible. They can kill many people, but they, but what's very important too is the economic devastation and um, dependency that are enshrined in these countries' economies that are that are done largely by the West and Western corporations, not even just the government, but the corporations. And um, so I'm, I'm very inherently skeptical of that. However, there are some people that are, you know, doing, and we should start with just, you know, defining voluntourism. It's, it's kind of what it sounds like. It's basically a combination of volunteering and tourism where Western people often, um, well, relatively well off Western Westerners go to, um, developing nations and participate in you know home building projects they build a well they teach english it's kids they do they do a whole variety of things and um then they then they go back to their home countries with a bunch of photographs and you know not always but often new eye-opening experiences they they, for the most part forget about it except for when it's convenient to bring it up to you know show some cloud or something but we should be careful yeah. not to say that all these trips are bad because, and, and the National Geographic article that was in response in some, to some degree to the Guardian article pointed out that, that there are many ways that we can restructure these kinds of trips to actually make them beneficial because, like, for example, if people come to, um, if people come to um, other, or people go to other countries and they teach English, one of the arguments against that is that it takes away a job for locals who, um, while they're, maybe their accent or their, like, their English is not the first language, but their knowledge of English grammar is like sufficient to teach a class, and that's taking away a job. But they're saying that if people go over for a few weeks and they teach the people who teach English, or you know, you can apply this to a whole another, a whole another, like, a wide variety of different skills and different projects. You can, if you like, instruct the people that are going to be doing a more long-term, sustainable thing in their own country, that can be more beneficial. And some of these trips are actually um, very beneficial. However, there are, of course, other ones that are not. And, yeah. and of course, I would also like to point out that the idea of somehow blaming Western volunteers for their opportunities for this stuff arise in large part because of the neo-colonial puppet governments that are installed through imperialist Western yes. foreign policy. The you know, like it is the leaders like uh, Museveni in Uganda, and um, I forget the name of the guy who's in charge of. Uh, the DRC right now, but, uh, you know, um, Mobutu, who was in charge uh, until the 90s, um, people like that, they tend to implement staunch neoliberal economic policies, really strident austerity and privatization, and they embrace wholeheartedly IMF structural adjustment programs and all of that. Uh, and, and even like they embrace the, the world banks, um, really harsh and stringent conditionalities for loans. And 
they, as a result of these policies of the neoliberal economic policies that these countries embrace, that often leaves their public education systems either non-existent or crumbling. And that's why there ends up being a lot of space in the end for Westerners to come in and do this thing because the government's not going to hire locals. They don't want to hire anybody because they don't have any money. So they are happy to have these, you know, these Western volunteers come over when, who are being paid for by some, you know, do-gooder liberal NGO, neoliberal NGO people. Uh, or some foundation types to come over and do that for them. It's why they're reliant on Bill Gates's, you know, charities for uh, malaria yeah, like to, and vaccines in I some like places in Africa. Someday, you know, really doing a deep dive into Bill Gates. I think that would be a fascinating thing. Too. Yeah, definitely. Especially since he's suddenly being lionized and going on CNN from these town halls every other night to talk yeah. about viruses and pandemics because he is cool a little more of an odious figure than people think at first. Really, he's really perfected the image of the humane philanthropist. I I mean, I'm inherently skeptical of him as well, but I I would say that I don't really like know that much about him yet. So I think uh, I would have to do a deep dive into that. But I think, you know, the, the volunteerism thing kind of highlights like a bigger problem in our society as well in that people... And 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 our, and our and the economy of the world, and that people are not really—it's almost by design, and maybe you know it is just a, like people are not really connected with people that are all that different from them, and they try to strive to do that through these kinds of very like narrow windows that you know people have a whole like cultural war associated with them and everything, and those kinds of like battlegrounds for these different ideas it's not really like i don't know what i'm trying to say here but it's not really like ideal to have the only like the only association between like the entire continent of africa for example and like you know small town america be like one church group that went there one time and people have no education about yeah what's actually going on in those countries they just think of it all as the same kind of shithole dump you know, to be frank, that's make people think of as those countries. They don't understand the role we play there. Yeah, when Sarah Palin referred to yeah, Africa as a whole country, exactly. when Trump and, called the whole continent shithole countries, that's everybody's vision of Africa. It's not actual Africa. They have, uh, most Americans have this bizarre monolithic abstraction in their head versus like the continent where black yes, people come and, from. It's it's poor and it's the heart of darkness, you know, like all this sort of leftover colonialism. Exactly, and, and we, we don't learn enough about the role that we have played. And, and so what happens is that when people go to those countries, and many of them, and I would say most of them have good intentions, that they are not aware of the role that the U.S. has played in an overwhelmingly negative sense in those countries. That leads itself leads to problems because we, if, if people don't know the basic truths about what U.S. imperialism has done, because it's not taught in schools, they cannot fully like comprehend. Especially if people are going to Vietnam or like those kinds of places. I mean, yeah, like even just with the basics of you know the transatlantic slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade decimated the most advanced societies in Western Africa. There were empires that had you know like indoor sanitation in 
nobles homes and whatnot had you know nobilities that who in terms of wealth and social organization um, were on par with Europe's aristocracy they were advanced societies that were sim- fairly similar um, just not quite as technologically advanced that due to the transatlantic slave trade they ended up with a literal manpower shortage because European countries helped turn these empires their slave traders turned these empires on each other and basically got them to compete to kidnap large numbers of men from each other's uh, territories so to sell them off as pr- to sell the prisoners Which off turned- to slave traders. And the result was a perpetual cycle of conflict. Polygamy was not even that common in p- large parts of Western Africa and in West African societies until some villages and some, uh, you know, we call them tribes, but essentially, you know, like ethnic groups or nations, um, there's no real difference. That's just the word we've chosen to attribute to them to otherize um, African ethnic or national groups. And uh, there were a whole of tribes where polygamy was not practiced until they ran out of men, until, they ran, until the gender ratio, due to how many men were being kidnapped in raids in order to fuel the slave trade, there were whole villages where polygamy got introduced because the gender ratio yeah. was that off, was that far off that, you know, that many, that a guy could actually, actually did have to have a bunch of wives if they, if they didn't want their population to cut in half when everybody died, when, when a generation died, then, you know, they needed one guy to marry a bunch of women and have a bunch of kids with them in order to just have a population replacement yeah, rate. Yeah. And that, and that was eight, and that was obviously like a few hundred years ago and when, when that was started. That it kept going on until the uh, like mid eighteen hundreds, and that dynamic played out. And basically, by the time that dynamic had started to play out, those great powers in Western Africa that could have possibly resisted European colonization at the in the second half of the nineteenth century were all gone and wiped out. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And, and we we talk about the slave trade. Um, it not only hurt the Africans, but it, you know, perpetuated the Europeans and, you know, in large part caused them to be, have a superiority and not superiority. Like, I mean, like a technical superiority and like a, an advantage was because they had so much free labor and they, and they had, they had. Yeah. The capital that, you know, the initial capital. Yes, exactly. And, And then they, you know, they, they turned that into their like imperialist, imperialism second wave of colonialism in the 19th century where they you know took large you know they, they took all of africa large swaths of asia and they they basically just you know turned that into their people forget it was all of asia really? at one point because even china, well, china was split was, up yeah. into for uh, spheres of influence japan, but japan had its own colonial tendencies within except for yeah, except for Japan in that Korea became an empire Taiwan. on its own after we in the United States actually yeah, tried yeah. to subjugate I, I mean, them. Um, I mean, China was not formally colonized, but large parts of it and all of the economically beneficial parts of it were divvied up with yeah. the open door policy and those kinds of things, which ended up, um, yeah, which ended the up in a way leading to the rise of Mao and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, Yes, and, and we're now uh, 
this is totally off topic, but you know, the in China, the idea of um, quote national humiliation is very prevalent. They have a museum of national humiliation um, in Nanking dedicated to the history of imperial atrocities committed against the Chinese during what they call the age of national yes. humiliation. Yes, they um, the China that that explains large parts of it. Yeah, yeah. We're, Not we're to get off topic. I mean, sorry, it's all, if uh, it's all, that was a um, it's all connected. Side tangent. I think the it's really hard for me personally because I've always been someone who has been intrigued by other countries just because it's you know it's different and but we don't we don't want to exoticize those kinds of things and I've always been someone who really feels like we should do a better job of helping people. Obviously, help other people at home is very important too, and I've. I've been trying, I'm like the charities that I've volunteered for, donated for in the past. Like I've tried to do things at home too, because that's, you know, easier in a sense. And it's, it's, you know, maybe it doesn't have the unintended consequences that, but I think it's very important for us to be involved with other countries around the world and, you know, build solidarity with people that don't look like that, us that don't talk like us. But at the same time, you don't want to have any like negative consequences of, of anything that you do and you don't want to perpetuate any kind of colonial pathways in those countries. So I think it's very hard for a lot of people that maybe have an interest and uh, have good intentions. You know, what do we do? What should Western, what should Western role be? In? And there's an argument to say it should be nothing, but I don't know if that's really the best. And I was, that's, that's an open question. That's not something we're going to solve today, but you know, what should, what should our role be? And, yeah. and if, for example, Bernie Sanders was elected president and a, you know, socialist light administration came to power. What should that role be in the international sphere? What should we do? What should American foreign policy do in those countries? I'm not just talking. Obviously, we end the wars. Obviously, that's that's a given. But like, what do we do beyond that? Yeah, that's just the, the basic one. And yeah, and obviously, I think that's a that's a whole that's a whole conversation for. Yeah, yeah. Another day, I'd say, yeah, yeah. given how long we've gone here. But, um, yes, definitely uh, the American imagine. We need to reopen our imaginations because it can't be just either we close ourselves off and say, ah, we, wa- we wash our hands of you after we've spent however many centuries um, pillaging and destroying this continent, the continent of Africa, after just obliterating it time and again for just for its richness and natural resources. We can't just wash our hands of it and say, yep, now, you know what, all the consequences of our actions, we're going to yeah. leave you to deal with them all on your own. Um, there, there needs to be a new form of internationalism, a new form of, dare I say, a new form of yes. globalization and of globalism. Um, that is built upon solidarity, upon nations interacting yes. on an equal footing. And of course, how that looks like, well, we, we'd need somebody yes, like Bernie to get elected first. Yes, we have to have something other than the isolationism that Trump, you know, campaigned on, but obviously it's not actually printed credits, or the Hillary Obama... Hillary Obama the faux isolationism of, uh, of paleocons. That's the, that's the a third way. Not, not to say a third way, but... Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. And with that, I think, as usual, we're going to leave 
our listeners with. Yes, yes, keep fighting for Bernie. Thanks for listening. And.